0: Living living without hope stinks. Tiresome. Does your battery feel drained this morning? Life crowds in and you feel bushed. Living without hope, I mean, I can live without a lot of things. There's a lot of things I get to enjoy, but I can live with, without most of those things. But, but one thing that I cannot live without is, is hope. And one thing that you and I, you can't live without is, is hope. Specifically thinking about living a life where I believe that God does not have a purpose for human history, is brutal, discouraging. Believing that God will not one day make all things right is, is emptying, discouraging, depressing. To, to live without hope that there is a conscious eternity following my physical death in this day, to live without hope that Jesus Christ is alive and he will deliver his people from death and sin and destruction, to live without hope that the truth in the end will finally be vindicated and all lies will be exposed, to live without hope where that real justice will finally occur perfectly is just absolutely unimaginable to me. I cannot live in a world like that. Everybody is vying for hope. Everybody in this world is looking for hope in some way. There's there's all these versions of hope that are out there. Coping mechanisms, maybe, is what they're called. Cultivating some sort of hope that believes something will happen tomorrow that's better. There'd be a corner turned and this thing or that thing. And so there's, there's these little hopes that fortunes will change. And inability to deal with the pain and pressures of their everyday life, people simply escape to whatever fantasy world they have created for themselves. And yet, in the end, uh, nothing is surer than just making that which is inevitable, inevitable. And of course, many would say that that's what we as Christians have done. They'd say that we've simply bought into a religious hope, a, a coping mechanism to deal with this life, to deal with the hardships, that there'll be a better tomorrow, there's, there's, there's heaven. And in this world, uh, much like every other world, uh, every, other, um, every other generation, um, in this world, there is a, there's an increasing sense that religious people are nuts. And they're just like, they're, they're coping in a different way. They're coping in their own way, and their thing is heaven. But that's not Christian hope. Christian hope is not just like saying, well, there's a better tomorrow. Let me explain. Christian hope is firmly in the return of Jesus and all that is associated with his return. And it's not a retreat. It's not just an imaginary playground that we play in while things are going bad all around us and just kind of head in the sand and, and, and ears, ears closed and just saying, well, well the Lord's going to return and it's all going to be good to somebody to get, to get through this. Our hope in the second coming of Jesus is what empowers us to deal with the things of this world. Our hope in the return of Jesus is what empowers us and motivates us to live in this world in strength and power and hope and joy and contentment to deal with the depressions that we have, to deal with the difficulties, and the anxieties that we experience, to deal with the difficult coworkers, to diff- the difficult marriages, the difficult parenting, all of those things. What is it that empowers and motivates us to face those problems head on, but for the Christian, the return of Jesus? And so I wanna ask you, what is it that empowers and motivates you to face your persistent problems today? If push comes to shove, what is it that gets you through a day? What gives you the ability to stand firm amid the storms of this life? Where is your hope situated? How is your grasp on true Christian hope? And how can we grow to be a people who stand firm no matter what's happening with a hope that is absolutely untouchable? Batteries of our lives are weary. They're weakened. Sometimes we wake in the morning and, and the the engine of our life goes tick, 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 tick. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to deal with this situation. I don't want to do that. I just can't even imagine something else. May this text, through the power of the Spirit, be utilized this morning as a charging cable to connect with the power that gives the energizing hope you're in desperate need of, and I'm in desperate need of. This is what Paul helps us to see. Two points this morning I want to share, and it's just this. First point, you are able to connect to the power of hope through godly examples. And secondly, you're guaranteed to connect to the power of hope through the power of Christ. First, you are able to connect to the power of hope through godly examples. There have been many people throughout my life who have had a significant impact on me. Um, A guy named Kenny Stokes took me under his wing almost 30 years ago um, when I was 23 and I had just become the associate pastor in Iowa and he showed me how to love and to care for and um, protect and, and challenge and encourage and strengthen the local church as an under shepherd under the great shepherd, King Jesus. There was a man named Frank Asa a uh, 99-year-old believer when he passed, but for the, remain, the last years of his life, you might imagine, were difficult. Uh, he was, he was um, his wife was, had been gone for 20-some years at that point, and, um, and he couldn't see worth a lick, big old thick glasses. He was a short little guy that just exuded joy in the return of Christ, and when he died, his joy I mean, I could just imagine his joy. His joy leading up to that point was just contagious to this 23-year-old guy or 25-year-old at the time. A guy named Gordon Hanstead was a retired pastor. Um, after five years of being in pastoral ministry, things were, things were difficult in the church, and I was tired already, and youth pastors, associate pastors in that church that lasted about 18 months. The average nationally was that. I'd been there for five years at that point, and there, some, there were some significant difficulties, and Gordon came in and strengthened my hand and strengthened the church, and I was able to watch him as a 73-year-old guy lead the church with grace kindness, when he could have, when the church could have been led by an authoritarian tyrant. I was very thankful for these three men in particular. And the list could go on. And of course, it's not just men. My wife has had likely the most powerful impact on my life, gospel-saturated lover of Jesus, imperfect. I mean, look who she chose. Um but she is a godly woman whom I have great affection for on so many fronts. My great-grandmother, Steventon, uh, 94 when she passed, she was in a nursing home for the last years of her life, and it was not a a nice nursing home. She came over to lunch uh, for us to enjoy, like we had roast lamb at at, uh, Sundays, we were British, and so there's like roasted lamb, roast beef, just all that stuff every Sunday for meals. And so she would come over and enjoy those meals, um, sometimes false teeth falling out on the table and whatnot. But, but uh, she, would, she would exude the love of Christ and the desire to be with Him as those years progressed. And so by the time she passed in 94, she's ready to go. So excited in those years, even though her life was significantly difficult. Of course, there are others throughout history, through biographies have been wonderfully influenced by George Mueller, John Bunyan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Johnny Erickson Tada, uh, Vanitha Reisner, someone who is uh, uh, now uh, a significant significant example of someone who hopes in the resurrection, um, specifically when Jesus comes back. And none of these people, um, are to be imitated because they're superhuman. They, they were, they still are, um, normal men and women who struggle in this life, but each one has lived with a deep and contagious and very present hope in the promised return of Jesus in his resurrection, in the glorification of our bodies in eternal heaven. None of these people are simply to be mimicked on account of style or speech or dress or popularity, or be, but to, to be imitated because they imitate Christ, to be imitated because they imitate Christ and they hoped in Christ or they are hoping in Christ and in the sure and certain promise of his return. Those people, those people in the church throughout history, those people in here in this room right now, there are a reason, there's a reason, Dave, why I want to spend more time with you. And it's not because you're good looking. Your your affection for the Lord Jesus and your desire to see him face to face is appealing to me. I wanna spend more time with you. There's others in this room are similar. Paul says in verse 17, brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now Paul doesn't want them to imitate him as an apostle or in his preaching style or in his personality or his specific spiritual gifting. He's just said also that he, he's not attained anything, he's not perfect, and so he's, he's a, he's a sin, sinner who has, is living in the power of the spirit by the grace of God, having his sins forgiven. And he has a hope in the return of Christ. And he says, I want you to imitate this kind of life, a, a life that is in a manner worthy of the gospel, lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. Problem is, Paul's in Rome, in a prison, Philippi is hundreds of miles away, and so he's saying, hey, imitate me, well, I actually, you know, imitate guys like Epaphroditus, Timothy, I mean, people, people like this, people who, people who are like this. And the reason why is because our grasp on Christian hope is affected greatly as we imitate people who have this hope. Uh, The problem is that what is also true is that our grasp on Christian hope is affected also as we imitate those who don't imitate Jesus. The reality is that there are many so-called Christian role models in our society and in the church at large where they'd be better off being ignored rather than imitated. And that was true in Paul's day, and that's very true in our day as well. Verses 18 and 19... Say this, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame and they set their mind on earthly things. Now the fact that these people brought Paul to tears indicates that he has some sort of relationship with them generally speaking. So he's been in Philippi in years past. He knows some of these people who have departed the faith or have have kind of, gone after things in this kind of way rather than living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it brings him to tears. He's emotionally involved. He's not just ticked off about it. He's he's broken about this reality. These are people who seem to have professed faith in Christ, claiming to have been born again, active in the church, but not in fact were not born again and on the road to destruction. And certainly in those early days of Christianity, Paul spoke primarily to that local church, uh, but as the last 2,000 years have passed by and Christianity has spread throughout the globe, this kind of Christian in name is just Christian by way of name only, professing Christian has just spread so far. In our society, one can claim to be a Christian and believe all sorts of stuff. One can claim to be a Christian and act in all sorts of ways. One can claim to be a Christian and speak specifically anti-Christ, anti-gospel nonsense on social media, and it ends up infiltrating the local church because people in the local church listen to them and desire to emulate them in some way. But Paul would have us be far more mindful of who it is we're listening to and following in step with. Paul describes these people in five phrases. He says, first, these are people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Christ not merely enemies of Christ, but enemies of his cross. They, they didn't deny that Jesus was crucified. Why didn't they deny that? Well, because it was historical fact, literally just a generation ago. They, they knew it, there was not a question about that. Uh, people in our day, of course, question all sorts of historical facts, but, but then there's, there's, there's no doubting that Jesus died on the cross. They were offended by the notion that the Messiah had been crucified. They simply disdained and resisted what the cross meant. They were offended by the suggestion that they were so sinful that nothing short of death on a cross by God in her place was necessary to save them. These people were offended by a salvation that was all of grace, excluded what they believed their good works should have attained for them. They were offended by the cross because it stands as God's rejection of the wisdom of man and pride of humanity and the power and self-sufficiency and self-will of humanity. To, to them, the cross is foolishness. It's a crutch. It's a ridiculous notion of religion to squash the freedom of the human's free will. And that's true today too, isn't it? Might be true in your heart this morning. Perhaps some of them saw that the cross was simply unimportant. I mean, okay, a big deal in history, but Just a relic of some religious oppressiveness. And Paul says, "Okay, these these people, who are enemies of the cross of Christ, um, Paul tells us that for people like that, their end is destruction." They may profess Christ, but you cannot think the cross of Christ to be meaningless and be truly forgiven of your sins or saved or in the beloved, a child of God. These people sounded like Christians, they looked like Christians, but they really ultimately despised the cross of Christ and either their despisal of what it represents or their dismissal of its importance and as such will be those who suffer ultimately destruction in the end. So you see, there's not just... It's not just um, derision of the cross, it's dismissal of the cross. Um, Two sides of the same coin This is not misguided or mean-spirited judgment on a group of people by Paul. This is the reality of the situation should they continue along this path as enemies of the cross of Christ. One cannot despise the cross of Christ nor the Christ of the cross and yet claim to be a follower of Jesus. And this brought Paul to tears, their end, destruction, when hope was right before their eyes. Moreover, their God is their belly. Verse 19b, these aren't people who are on the path of denying themselves, taking up their cross and following Jesus. Rather, these people are given over to such self-indulgence that they've effectively made their own fleshly desires, gods whom they want to follow themselves. We see this, things, we see this in, in things like online pornography. Just given over, given over to it. Just their appetite wants it ruin their marriage and ruin their relationship with the Lord, to make shipwreck of their faith, all for what their bodies crave. Whatever sinful inclination they feel, they embrace. Whatever immoral hunger they long for, they indulge in. When their appetite for whatever it is they want cries out for satisfaction, these people bow at the throne of whatever it is they worship, and they obey it repeatedly. And these are people who worship their own passions and desires and lusts. These are not people who fight Temptation. These are not people who struggle and wrestle against flesh and, blo- against flesh and blood and powers and principalities. These are people who give themselves over to it and yet somehow claim the name of Christ. Enemies of the cross, not just is God their belly, but they actually glory in their shame. The last part of verse 19, the very wicked and perverse behavior that ought to bring conviction and shame they actually promote and they praise and take pride in I mean, again, it's one thing for a professing Christian to sin and then feel convicted and pursue repentance and belief in the gospel. I mean, that's our life. That's a joy that we have, a privilege. It's the power of the spirit and the power of the gospel at work in our life. But it's another thing altogether that when when you feel conviction or guilt, and instead of pursuing repentance and believing the gospel, a person actually turns and promotes their sin and glories in it. The recent rash of big names in evangelical Christianity who've gone through so-called deconstruction of their faith fit into this category, um, promoting and even charging people to learn how they deconstructed their faith and living in the glory of it as though I'm finally free of the cross of Christ. Uh, These are people whom Paul says set their mind on earthly things. They don't simply think on earthly things, they set their mind on earthly things. And each of us are inundated, aren't we, with things of the world. We we just, we have things coming at us all the time. These people though, whom Paul is talking about, aren't just having the infiltration of the world and battling it, they're obsessed with the things of the world. They just want the things of the world. They long for the things of the world. They think worldly thoughts, They don't wrestle against that whatsoever. They're fixated on the here and now to the exclusion of eternal and heavenly realities. And these people who may very well profess Christ are set on the things of this world. And Jesus says very clearly in numerous ways, he says, you cannot play both sides of the fence. You cannot love me and There are two different kind of people to emulate, only two, people who glory in the cross of Christ and those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They might be the nicest people in the world, but enemies of the cross of Christ, nevertheless. Only two options. And consider the huge contrast that Paul makes in our text between the two. He says, there are enemies of the cross whose destiny is destruction. That's one option. Want to imitate that? and there are those whose joy is in the cross and whose destiny is eternal freedom. There, there, there are those devoted to indulging the body and making a God of its appetites, and there are those who look forward to the transformation of the body by our God and Savior Jesus Christ. There, there are those whose citizenship is completely centered on this world and the politics of this world and what's going on in this world and we're just invested in this world so much. That and then there are those whose citizenship is primarily centered on the new heavens and new earth. And so their involvement in the things of this world is strengthened by the reality that they're citizens of another country. There are those who set their minds on the temporal things of this world and live with no eternal expectation or hope. And then there are those who set their minds on eternity and live with expectant hope in the promised return of Jesus. We have these two choices always before us. And of course, we have these two choices ourselves as far as the way we're reflecting and other people imitating us. Which kind of person do you observe? Which one do you desire to emulate? What kind of person are you whom others observe and desire to emulate? It's the grasp we have on real hope is certainly affected by those whom we choose to observe and emulate. And the reason I titled this portion or this, this section is specifically this way. You are able to connect to the power of hope through godly examples is because it's optional for us this morning to find hope by observing and emulating godly examples or not. And it's not just not by way of neutrality, but you're emulating something. And it's either the one or it's the other. And of course, yes, there's, there's continuums on each side, but, but the reality is there's two choices. And I'm just asking you, which one do you, which one are you and which one do you want to emulate? For the Philippian believers and for you and I who love Christ and have trusted Christ, Paul tells us that there is real power in our hope. I, I would say that one of the biggest struggles in the church throughout, throughout history has been hope. Hope getting undercut, hope being stripped, hope being, if the enemy of our faith is, is challenging us, is, is confronting us, is trying to strip us of anything, It's hope. Strip us of hope. Second point, you're guaranteed to connect to the power of hope through the power of Christ. Paul tells us, for all those who trust Jesus and live for him, we've been made citizens of the new heaven and new earth, a better country. It's not just a future inheritance, but for the one who's in Christ, it's a present experiential reality as one who has been moved from uh, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the enemy into the kingdom of the sun. We've been brought into a new kingdom. Do you believe that you have been brought into a new kingdom? It's hard, isn't it? Because we feel oppressed on every side. We feel this kingdom ruling and reigning, but it's not ruling and reigning for those who are in Christ. We're part of a new kingdom. Our home country is not simply a distant hope, it's a present reality. Our new citizenship is infinitely better, entirely untouchable by the things of this world in the face of tyrannical leaders and socialist despots and humanistic democracies. All kinds, all kinds of politics, no matter who it is, all kinds of countries, no matter matter what what kind of nation it is, the better country, the citizenship that we have been brought into Hands down, immensely, intensely, infinitely better and eternal. As citizens of that better country where we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20 all the joys and splendors of heaven as those who enjoy the presence of God now by the blood of Jesus. I th- think about it like as I've led at different times where we talk about how when we come here, we, we come here on Sunday morning not just to come to Bellbrook, we come here together to come before the throne of God by the blood of Jesus to Mount Zion into the presence of the Lord. Not trying to Not trying to woo God down somehow by our energetic worship or not, it's the... Reality is that we get access to the throne room. We get to come, and we get to enjoy his presence. And Christians eagerly await with joyful expectation the return of Jesus where we see him face to face, looking at the horizon, knowing that one day we'll finally see him. This morning, um, it's the second week of of the resurrection. Uh, It's the second Sunday of Easter. And if you're familiar with John's telling this. This was the day, or maybe tomorrow, where where Thomas, where Jesus shows himself to Thomas, and he says, "Put your hands, put your hands here. Feel and know that I'm the real deal. That I have risen." And Thomas says, uh, "My Lord and my God." He like just he says, oh "Yes, you are alive." And what is it Jesus says? Jesus says, um, "You know, hey, it's great that you see this now. Bless are those." Have not seen and yet believe. And that's just each one of us in this room. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We long for that day when we will see Him face to face. And one of the reasons we usually anticipate that day when we see Him is because Jesus promised that He will transform our lowly bodies to become like His glorious body. Now, I wish I was six foot five sometimes uh or or at least six foot but i'm like five nine on a good day and five seven probably more accurately so that that i just always want to be somebody different i wish i was i wish i i wish i looked like colin sprague i wish uh stuff like that right hair uh thin cut all that so but but um but I'm bald, pink, red right now, and overweight. And you know, the reality is, hey, life stinks. And, and it's just kind of the way I am. I'm always wanting to be something different. And I'm sure if I look like Colin Sprague, and Colin, you might, be, you might, you might say you wish you looked like me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> good, good chance that's not true. But um, nevertheless, we, we, we want to be somebody else. We look in the mirror and we're like, oh, man. Or you wake up in the morning, the older you get, and Dave, I hear you say, don't grow old. It's tough. It hurts. Your back's sore. Perhaps you're wrestling with varying levels of anxiety. Perhaps you're dealing with significant discouragement. Perhaps you're dealing with disease, weakness, fatigue, pain. Discomfort, the threat of death, always there. How how do we respond to those things? We know how the world responds. How do we respond to those things? Does your hatred of what is happening in your body strip you of life and joy and hope? Or, Or does it cause you to fix your eyes on the heavens? and the return of Jesus who will finally, fully, and forever change your body into one that's fit for the glorious of heavens and the kingdom of God. And this, is the prom- this is one of the promises of Christian hope is that it will not always be like this. Friends, you and I will live for eternity in a very real glorified and redeemed body. We will not be simply spiritual beings who float around. We consider the resurrected body of Jesus as our example, not a ghost, a real body, one who ate, one who swallowed, one who was able to be touched when he talked. Now our eternal existence will be, as those who believe in Christ, those who trust in Christ, will be in a glorified body that no disease will ever touch again, no death threaten anymore. And how is this so? Paul says he will do all this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power that created all things by a word. This is the power that created trillions of stars into existence out of nothing. This is, this is the power that parted the Red Sea. This is the power that caused manna to fall from heaven and made the uh, walls of Jericho collapse at Israel's feet. This is the power of God that preserved Daniel in the lion's den. All these stories that we, we look at and we consider and we just kind of say, well, that was amazing. And this is more than amazing. The reality is there's a power of God at work and that power of God that did that is the power of God that will make sure, make certain that our bodies don't stay like this. But there is a resurrection day for us when Jesus returns. This is the power that enabled the virgin to conceive and give birth and conquered demons and calmed the sea and cleansed the lepers and raised the dead and sustained Jesus as he took on our sin on the cross and the power that raised him from the dead. This is the power that took hold of your life. This is the power that's taken hold of my life and redeemed us and and set us free from our sin, wiped the guilt of our soul clean, and gave you the Holy Spirit, the eternal Holy Spirit of God to empower us to dwell well within us. This is the power that will one day appear again and destroy all of God's enemies and deliver God's people and raise us and transform us and glorify our bodies to be like his own. This is the power of Christ in which we've placed our hope. This is why, this is why verses like this mean something. Why so downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in God? This, this power extends to all things, Paul says. While his enemies and ours still exist all around, they will never prevail. The power of the kingdom of Jesus Christ of which we are citizens is seen now through the preaching and declaration of the gospel both here and in Turkey, even even what's already happened, but like when the gospel is being preached, not just on Sunday mornings, but as it's being proclaimed, as we're taking the Lord's supper, there's, there's, there's the kingdom of God expanding and growing in its power that's happening. His, his kingdom is expanding and that we're, we're citizens of when God's people walk in humility and humbly submit to suffering and persecution. And the power of Christ is seen when we don't revile someone, when we're reviled. That the power of Christ is seen when a suffering believer doesn't turn away from his faith because he or she is overcome by the sheer beauty of Jesus in the face of all the pain and the sorrow of this world and longs for that day when there will be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, and all will certainly be well. And no, you may not always think you see it, the power of God at work, it is indeed the power of Christ that keeps everything necessary in this physical universe in place. And we take this for granted all the time. We, we are a science-worshipping society. Science is awesome. But there is a God before the science. You're not exclusive. One doesn't exist without the other and it's not not God that's in question. Science exists because God made it. With a word of his power, he created, and all things hold together, including you and your face right now looking at me, and your chairs, and my feet, and this podium, and this Bible, this light, this candle, these lights, this building, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the grass, the, everything that we just take for granted ever Power of God at work all the time. It's glorious. All we see, all we don't see, held together by the word of his power. And this power that is not just out there, but it's alive and at work in me and will present me faultless before him on that final day, Man, that power will never, ever, ever fail. This world will pass away, but the God of this, the God who created the world will never pass away, and he will bring in new heavens and new earth on that final day. His power is eternal. His kingdom is forever. I was sick this past week with fevers, heavy cold symptoms like a number of you, and I wasn't overly pleased with it. Uh, it's often hard to be happy when you're sick, isn't it? Just, you know, just like feel kind of miserable and, um, or when you're hurt, or when you're dealing with a disease. In heaven, with new and glorified bodies, there will be no fatigue. Can you imagine that? No pain, no discomfort, no chronic aches, no debilitating anxiety, no sleepless nights, There will only be pure physical pleasure with no bodily obstacles to diminish our ability to see and to feel and to hear and to touch and to taste the smells of glory of paradise and Christ Jesus himself. The physical and emotional and intellectual pleasures of heaven will infinitely exceed the most ecstatic of physical and sensual pleasures here on earth. So anything that you've enjoyed here, whether morally or immorally, the reality is that all of the joy that's wrapped up in those things will come to absolute perfect and glorious um, uh, uh, end in heaven where we will experience the greatest joy ever. What we were created for. The age to come, I think of this, I consider that the sufferings of this present world can, do not compare to the glories that are yet to come. You feel that? In the age to come, there will be no degradation of mind or understanding, and we will be able to think and comprehend the majesty of God in ways we've never experienced. We'll have senses that enable us to see and to feel and to hear and to taste the infinite wonders of Jesus. There'll be nothing to defile your body. There'll be nothing to defile your heart. No brain fog, no wicked impulses, no... No. No. Um, no, no t- tendencies, sinful tendencies that you just have to fight over and over again. No dullness of spirit. No weariness of heart to hold you back. No weakness of will to keep you in bondage. No lack of energy to love somebody else. No lack of passion to pursue what you were created for. Just uninhibited joy and pleasure not just in some sort of religious sense, true pleasure. You Think about what makes you happy today, what gives you the most joy today. It it compares not at all to the joy that is heaven. It's it's a little taste, a little taste of what is yet to come. You like a juicy steak, right? We love a juicy steak, or whatever your favorite food is, and it's just a little tiny taste of what we're gonna experience in heaven all the time. This is indescribably joyful. And listen, the practical benefit of fixing our eyes on this and finding people who are like this to observe and to to emulate, man, the practical benefit is that we'd stand firm amid a world that shakes and a life that feels very shaky. It's this sure and certain hope of the second coming and eternal heaven that gives us the power to not indulge ourselves in the way the people that Paul describes in verse 18 and 19 do. And for many of you who feel trapped in almost unbearable pain or circumstances you can't control, this, this may be the only thing that keeps you from suffocating in despair. You, you must remember that what you're experiencing or suffering now is not the final word. It's just not. Never ultimate. It'll never prevail. Whatever enemies are making life miserable for you, they will be defeated. Whatever bodily pain won't go away, it eventually will go away. Jesus will defeat every opponent. He will make all things right. And so the main point that I think Paul is getting across today, the one that I want to focus on here, is that the hope of the second coming of Jesus empowers and motivates us to stand firm amid the persistent problems of the present. And Cody, could you just leave that up there? The hope of the second coming of Jesus empowers and motivates us to stand firm amid the persistent problems of the present. Now let me ask, which kind of person do you want to emulate? Who is it you listen to? Who is it that you observe? Who is it that you emulate now? Because you emulate someone Everyone does. And our grasp of Christian hope is significantly affected by those we are listening to and emulating. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on more information, a lot of emphasis on more teaching, that, that uh, if, they just, if they just know this, if they just know this, then, then all will be well. People's issues will be handled, especially over the last couple of hundred years, that's been true. But we'd be wise to recognize that oftentimes truth and goodness and holiness are better caught than taught. Now, I'm not saying teaching is not important. Teaching is is very, very important. But I'm saying it's not the pinnacle of what we're after. Who are those people in your life who you want to catch things from? Who do you hang out with? Whose conduct are you observing? Whose conduct are you studying? Whose conduct are you imitating? Whose lives serve as a model for your own? That's, that's an application question. Who is it? It's two choices, remember? Those two choices. And yes, there's continuums on both sides. There's nothing to- talking about, you know, is, is Hitler the one that you're following? Or it's, it's much more nuanced than that. But in the end, enemies of the cross are those who cling to the cross. And I encourage you to find those around you in whom you see the hope of Jesus and spend time with them, like a lot of time with them. And then let their lives wield a positive and constructive influence on how you think, how you talk, how you live. Who are those people in your life? And you can look around you right now or consider, look at the church directory and just recognize the fact that the church, this church has many imperfect people who love Jesus implicitly and strive to follow him and look forward to the coming day when they'll see Jesus face to face. People who look to the return of Jesus and find hope and strength for the difficulties they're presently going through. To look to them and to ask them how, how they're doing. Well, how, how can I grow in this? How can I be more like you? This is one of the reasons why a number of months ago when I was gone overseas, the, the other brothers, the elders, um, shared with you the book, Let the Children Worship. There's still some in the back. But the reason, part of the reason why we want to, if you haven't read that yet, please, please read it. Um, there's a reality of like, you might think that your kids aren't catching anything here, but over the days and weeks and months, they're observing. They're observing. They're not just being taught a one-way pieces of information all the time, which is also necessary, but they're watching and learning. They're watching who? Well, they're watching you, parents. They're watching you worship, how you worship, how you're interacting. They're considering other people, other godly saints around. Who are these people? and why, why do they seem to care so much about this stuff? Creating questions in their hearts. They see us taking the sacrament at the end of the, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And if you are in it with them at all, in conversation, they're going to ask the question, what in the world is that all about? gospel opportunity galore. See, we we are information distributors. We just wanna see information passed on, information. Oftentimes, that information is passed on by things that are observed in other people. It's one of the reasons why we want your kids in here with us, to be able to watch and observe and enjoy and be participants of that this church is their church that this, this celebration service is their celebration service as the weeks, months, and years go by. Now, more pointedly, to, to what extent are you yourself a role model for others? There are, there are those who are, in fact, observing you right now. Again, perhaps it's children observing parents or adult kids observing older parents. Perhaps it's a friend or a coworker. What is it they're observing in you? Do do they see a life of angsty morality that claims to be filled with joy in Christ? Or do they see a person, you know, really filled with hope, A, a person who struggles, a person who wrestles, a person who's tired, but a person who has hope in the return of Christ? Do they see imperfect people living lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, lives lived in self-denial and in imitation of Jesus Christ, living in the promise of the resurrection and our glorification when Jesus returns, or are they seeing something else? Friends, I introduced you to a guy named Frank Asa just at the beginning of this sermon. 73 years my senior, when when we were in Iowa, He was in late 90s, his eyesight was gone, his movements minimal, his health rapidly deteriorating, and yet I witnessed the eagerness he had in those blind eyes to see Jesus in just a short time. And I wanted to be like that as a 23-year-old kid. I wanted that same hope. And when I sat at a funeral of the great evangelist Oswald J. Smith in Toronto when I was 17, I'd given my life to Jesus just a year and a half prior. And then I heard about his life given over to Jesus, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit through many, many, many difficulties, especially as he grew older. And I sang out with the congregation this song that he wrote, Fairest of 10,000... Is Jesus Christ my Savior, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He is all my glory, and in this heart of mine forever I'm singing a song of love divine. Tis the song of the soul set free, and its melody is ringing. Tis the song of the soul set free, joy and peace to me it's bringing. "'Tis the song of the soul set free, "'and my heart is ever singing, "'Hallelujah, hallelujah, the song of the soul set free.'" There was significant rejoicing at this man's funeral. Yes, there were tears, but there was joy. Why? Because of resurrection hope. And I watched that as a 17-year-old boy. Nobody knew who I was. Did I understand everything that was going on? No, but I observed joy in the hearts of men and women that were older than me, 50, 70 years older, loving Jesus. And I, when I sang that song, I wanted, I wanted the joy that, that was all around me. I wanted it then, and I want it more now, 36 years later. And this desire is only the kindness of King Jesus in sending His Holy Spirit to cause me to see clearly. It was why I wanted to sing that song, Open My Eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus, to see Him increasingly so that one day when I see him face to face, I'll recognize him and enjoy him forever. This hope in Christ and his second coming and in eternal heaven is no crutch. It's no coping mechanism. It's what empowers us. It's what motivates us to stand firm and confront the difficulties head on with real hope. I mean, go after coping mechanisms all day long and they will come and go and sometimes they will work, other times they won't. The resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit unfazed, infinite power at our disposal. We have examples all around us of those who live in that hope, people who live with the power of hope and the power of Christ amid the difficulties of this life, and those who live in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and enjoy real, lasting, transforming, empowering, motivating joy. So again, I ask you, who are you listening to who are you observing who are you emulating someone who has the eternal hope and lives in the good of it or someone who lives in the scrap heaps of indulgence that leads to destruction each of us commits similar sins as to those whom paul calls enemies of the cross we we've set our eyes sometimes on earthly things we've gloried in our shame we've obeyed our fleshly appetites but listen, Christ Jesus, in whom we have hope that this body of flesh and this fallen mind will one day be set entirely free, delivered, not to struggle anymore, absolutely transformed and raised to new life, that's the Jesus we trust in. That hope isn't just for a day off in the future when Christ will work in power on our behalf, but this hope is a present reality, which is why Paul would exclaim in doxological exclamation, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's true power, that's real hope, something none of us can live without. Something that literally everyone is looking for around you? Does this hope exist in your own heart? Does it motivate you to get up in the morning? Does it motivate you to get up and face the day, the difficult day that's before you? Is this the hope that you hold out for your kids? Is this the hope that you hold out for your friends? Is this the hope that you hold out for your coworkers? Is this the hope that you hold out for your enemies? If not, what are you waiting for? The hope can start doing that right now. This is a present truth. There's something specific and unique about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that helps us in this very thing. Our statement of faith states this about the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, the gathered church eats bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people, And drinks the cup of the Lord, signifying His blood shed for our sins. And as we observe this sacrament with faith and sober self-examination, we remember and proclaim the death of Christ. We commune with Him, and we receive spiritual nourishment for our souls. Signify our unity with other members of Christ's body, and look forward to the Lord's triumphant return. As we come to eat, to look to the table, to to eat and to drink, we look with the eyes of our heart to to the past, and we remember specifically what Jesus has done for us. He broke his body in our place on the cross in real time and space. He actually did shed his blood for us on the cross. And he did this so we would have forgiveness of sins and be welcomed into the family of God, the body of Christ if we place our trust in him. So we do look backwards and we do remember and certainly, this is what the Lord stated clearly in the Lord's Supper in the night he was betrayed when he said, Do this in remembrance of me. We look back and we see, but we also come to the table living in, in the present. And as all meals do, this meal is meant to nourish our body. But how is a meal like this supposed to nourish our body? It's obviously doesn't have anything to do with the quantity, right? There's something else. Now the context in which we're to eat the Lord's Supper is corporately. We do this together, in fact, as the body of Christ. All the order for enjoying and celebrating this meal speaks of when the church comes together. This is what we do. We, we live in the present together and we eat the meal together and we drink the juice together that the body would be nourished, that the body of Christ would be nourished and each part of the body is nourished, not just, not just certain parts, but each part of the body is nourished in this meal. And it certainly is a personal nourishment, right, that takes place, but it is the church that is strengthened and nourished most primarily. The body is nourished as we're eating and drinking together as the body of Christ. But strengthened and nourished by what? Some Christians believe that that the juice and the bread actually become the body and blood of Jesus, so that as we eat and drink, we're actually eating and drinking his body, physical body, and so. Doing that, our sins would be paid for. We, we don't believe that. Yet we do believe that there is a very real sense, spiritual sense of eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. We would be in error, we believe, if we just simply said, this is just to remember something in the past. There is a present nourishment that is meant to be experienced as the body of Christ as we eat and drink. This is a big deal. Other portions of Christianity historic have made this an enormous deal to an extent where we would disagree to the extent that they go, but just by way of some conversation with people, recognizing, you know, we kind of are on the other end of the spectrum, somewhere over here by like just kind of saying, "Mm, we're not that, we disagree with that, but but we just kind of, we're gonna remember the gospel, we're gonna remember what Jesus did and we miss out on what this meal is actually for, on all that this meal is for. We do believe, again, that there's a very real spiritual sense of eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. The church has grappled with this. They continue to grapple with this, uh, trying to explain what it is that happens in this meal. But without going too far and striving to not be simply those who would see this meal as a time of remembrance only, we believe at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton that this meal is, in fact, meant to be a spiritually nourishing meal for us, strengthening us at the core of our being, exciting us for faith in life in this day. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given to me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. And so we eat and we drink, we take into our lives, into our bodies, what happened on the cross, who Jesus is by faith, by the power of the Spirit, trusting in all the benefits of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, nourishing ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. And we are to be nourished by this very real yet spiritual presence of Jesus in all of his risen glory. Now, Books and books and books have been written about this, trying to figure out what this nourishment means. Some people, again, go too far. Some people don't go far enough. We're we're certainly not gonna find the perfect middle, but we're we're trying to say, hey, we're looking backwards and we're looking upwards right now. And we're saying, feed me, oh bread of heaven. Sustain me. Eat your body and drink your blood, not just by way of like memorialism, but like taking in the strength and the power and the promises of Jesus. So we look up to heaven where the risen and ascended Christ intercedes for us as our great high priest, and so we're looking backwards, we're, we're looking upwards, we're looking forward then to the day when Jesus will return. The celebration of the supper serves as a proclamation of Jesus' death which anticipates his return. Jesus himself said in Matthew 26 when he instituted this supper, this kind of thing, that he's looking forward to that day when all will be well. For the ultimate outworking of God's salvation plan has long been associated with the promise of not this banquet, uh, this little tiny meal, but the great banquet to come, where we will gather with all the saints throughout history and rejoice at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, friends, far from this time being a time to look back and remember, this celebration of the Lord's Supper is full and it's rich and it's meant by our King to be nourishing for us as we await the day when He returns. So as we come to this table, we celebrate all of the death of Jesus accomplished for us. Forgiveness for the past and the present and the future. The, the declaration of acceptance before Holy God and being welcomed into His family. Strength by the Spirit of God that comes from taking into our very bodies the spiritual presence of Jesus and fixing our gaze on the day when this little meal will be swallowed up by the great Victory Feast of the Lamb. So if you are a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you to come and to, to partake of this small little meal with us. If you've trusted in Jesus, if your hope is in Jesus, come and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes with us, taking into your body the body and the blood of Jesus and saying, fill, fill me up, Lord. With more of you, strengthen me, for I am weak. Recharge my batteries. Cause me to see and to glory in the King of creation. Join the church throughout the ages and enjoying this meal and being nourished by it and expecting for the final day to come.